Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and today I'm joined by no one. Uh, today, it's going to be just me hosting the podcast, and we have on a fantastic guest, our actually first return guest, uh, Sagar and Jetty, will be joining us for this episode of the podcast. But as always, make sure you go to AmericanMoment.org first. There you can find our podcast backlog. You can find episodes that we've done with everyone, including Sagar. Um, you'll find uh, things on Amazon. Canon, which is our aggregator of some of the best books, essays, podcasts, YouTube videos, short pieces, and so on. And you'll also find information about upcoming events and things that we're doing here in Washington, D.C. We want to meet you guys, want to see you guys, so please don't be a stranger and reach out anytime if there's any way we can be helpful. Uh, but without further ado, our guest this week is Sagar and Jetty, who uh, is the conservative host of Breaking Points, uh, a show on YouTube, uh, now independent and subscriber-funded. Previously, he was at the Hill TV where he grew it uh, from nothing to be a 1.3 million subscriber juggernaut. Uh, before that, he was a White House correspondent with The Daily Caller, where he interviewed President Trump four times, and he is still the co-host of the Realignment podcast, all fantastic institutions and things that you should be keeping an eye on. Uh, and in addition to all of that, he very graciously serves on our board of advisors here at American Moment. Uh, he was the very first person we called when we had the idea for this organization, and if we were going to do it again, I have a feeling he would still be that very first person. Person. We had a fantastic episode where we talked a lot about the media landscape today, what it means to be a populist, uh, specifically what has happened in Afghanistan, his and my shared disgust of how neocons and neoliberals alike are using it as a casus belli for more war, um, and also uh, how he thinks about the future of the right, COVID, and much more. Uh, it was a fantastic episode. He gets really angry when it comes to Afghanistan and the neocons, so highly recommend you stick around for that. Um, and stick around for the end, uh, where I'm going to rant about uh, Texas Republicans and their uh, utter corporate solicitude when it comes uh, to the biggest corporations in America. Without further ado, we now go to Sagar and Jetty. Sagar, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, man. Good to first see you. return guest. I'm back. I'm yeah. back. I was the first here, first return guest. So yeah. this is fun stuff. Yeah, Marshall couldn't make it, but yeah. oh well. Um, so it's funny because we tried to ask this question the first time we had you guys on, but we did it like three quarters of the episode in and there were like three different threads floating and now we always start with it. So uh, would you mind explaining to people how you got to the point where you are today? Like track the trajectory of your career because it's a windy one. You've done a lot of everything. How did you get to the point where you're, uh, I guess, a professional YouTuber, if that's the yeah. term? <laughs> hey, YouTube is what it's all about. Uh, no. So it's an interesting road, really. So I was, and I try to explain this because actually you're, you're much younger than me. And so you probably won't even remember this time. When you became politically alive, it was much more like this than it was before in the Obama era. So like I came to GW, it was like 2010, and frankly, domestic politics was boring. It's like, yeah, there was the Tea Party wave, but then what did it mean? Debt, gridlock and the debt ceiling. That was like the big thing, right? So I got really into foreign policy, and most kids my age kind of were, because think about that time, the Arab Spring, right? 2011, the Syrian Civil War, Afghanistan, the war was continuing, Iraq, ISIS, 
terrorism. It was like, that was where all the energy was. So that's kind of like where my focus was. And it was really around that time, like my awakening. I'm embarrassed to admit it, but I was definitely a lot more of like a neocon sympathetic person at the time. And it was because I was seeing the failures of the Obama administration. And that was the only like narrative floating out there. That's kind of how I politically became really awake was saying, hey, this is crazy. Like looking at ISIS and looking at Afghanistan and more bought some of the more conventional wisdom. Anyway, I really wanted to do something about it. I wanted to write about it. I wanted to fight back kind of, you know, against this, what I saw is really like the Obama ministry, you know, just a lot of like the, the, the liberal, neoliberal view, view of the world of like, oh, well, we care a lot about human rights and all this, but like you're literally diminishing American capacity all around the globe. And like, you can't say radical Islamic terrorism while people are literally being slaughtered on the streets of America. That was really like my awakening. Anyway, so that's how I got to go work at the Daily Caller. I, you know, had some feelers out or whatever. I really, really wanted to write about Afghanistan, about the war. I wanted, especially Syria, um, was at the time. And, you know, it's not, it's, it's a hard gig to get. But really what it was is I met somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody at the Caller and they were hiring. And I was like, okay, you know. And so uh, I actually got interviewed by Tucker. Um, at the time yeah and it was great you know we hit it off like he was a really cool guy that's like kind of the last time i saw him too you know know, after a while because then he left it it almost immediately got a fox news show so it was like i was in that very last period where tucker carlson was like running the collar then i worked under neil patel and all the guys there and i worked there for a couple of years and you know it's all just i got a series of lucky breaks like that was number one covered foreign policy got to trash obama um but really the fun part for me from my domestic political awakening was I think of the collar and right-wing media really at the time as this like beating heart of like the conservative base and I remember a lot of the people I was listening to on foreign policy at the time were like this is not who we are like Trump and all this and I was like yeah like maybe you know like I didn't have like strong feelings really I mean I didn't like Trump and like I was like I was like I feel like Trump is doing all these things which conventionally like shouldn't be working and then I would see the traffic and then I would see also like the stories and like what was resonating and stuff and I was like wait I was like these people don't know what the hell they're talking about (laughs) and especially when Trump won and I was like this is crazy I was like this is totally crazy like everything I've ever been taught is a total lie um, by the kind of the conservative establishment in Washington so that was like my second awakening and then really the tides turned. So like foreign policy was no longer cool anymore. Now it was all about domestic policy. So I really started to get into and try to understand like what the hell is going on? I'm like, clearly, I don't understand what's going on. Clearly the people I'm looking to explain the world to me don't know what the hell is going on. So then started reading some of the people that you've got here. Um, Raihan Salam in particular was somebody I was already sympathetic to pre-Trump. And then, you know, Raihan and Ross and a lot of these other kind of explanations really pushed me in that direction. So I wanted to get more domestic, caught another lucky break, became a White House correspondent, um, and then covered Trump, interviewed him several times. And it was during that period that I then started to fill in on this show called Rising, uh, which was used to be hosted by Buck Sexton. And I didn't want it to get out of hard news journalism for a while. It's not really my forte, in my opinion. And I wanted to get more into punditry, commentary, all of that. Um, so Buck left. I took over the show for him, and the rest is history. So here I am. Yeah, you were there with Crystal Ball in a very particular moment, I think, uh, in American political moment. life. Because yeah. um, it was right around 2019, uh-huh. 2020, uh, there was 
an election going on and specifically the Democratic primary election. That right. seems like it was really the, the match that lit the flame for the show. What why why did people suddenly pay attention? It was it was kind of like covering Trump in 2015, which I remember the people who used to do that. I have a lot of friends who were like 23, 24, and they were assigned by their news orgs to cover Trump because like he's not going anywhere. We focus on all the misfits like Yang, Bernie, Tulsi, all these people who are being totally undercovered and underserved by corporate media. And that was it. That That's all. Just cover it fairly. That's, that's all kind of people ask. And so that's what the match was lit. But then it, you know, evolved into this whole thing that obviously the pandemic was like crazy. And like we were constantly juggling like how to cover it, like scientific skepticism of elites, but also like not going like full crazy or whatever. And like all the debates around the stimulus checks, you know, like that was that was some of the best times of the show, in my opinion, was really like in the middle of that, in the middle of the election, trying to make sense of it all. Um, that was, I think, where we really found our footing. It was right, you know, J- July 2020. It's right after we went on Joe Rogan, so the show really blew up. Um, that was, that was, I think, a, kind of our finest hour, I think. You were in the middle of a process that usually cuts the other way for most people who may have taken a similar track, you know, in the foreign policy space, going through traditional journalism, uh, which is that the, uh, you know, revolution that YouTube and online media and, and sort of a more fan-centric uh, model for, for media was actually inuring to your benefit, yeah. whereas most legacy media would complain about it. Um, what was the incentive structure like building that show from nothing to, I think, when you left Rising, and we'll talk about that, it was 1.3 million subscribers or mm-hmm. something like that. Um, did you feel like you had to adjust what you appreciated, what you liked, and what you thought was good journalism? Look, here, 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 one thing I always try and tell people is it's not about you. It's about what people may like about you. So what I mean by that is, look, I got a lot of interests, many, many, many interests. Um, in terms of what people will find interesting, there's you know a narrow view. That's yeah. fine. It's okay. You do that for them, and then you have your interests that nobody cares about for yourself. I could talk your ear off about a lot of different subjects. So... In a way, look, everybody, it's all about curation. And what I think is, in terms of like what I do, is I curate news that I think is undercovered and important. And luckily, there are a lot of people who agree with me. And so at this point, I think I have a pretty good idea of that. But in terms of the news curation, like, did I not cover anything? Or I think what you're asking is like, did I have to adjust the way? Yeah, absolutely. And it's because... Look, it's about attention. And really what it is is I felt like a real responsibility personally in order to try – like it's very hard for people in D.C. to understand this because most of the time, most journalists are writing for each other. They're not actually writing for other people. They want to impress their friends. They want to get CNN contracts. They want to – and I know how it all works because I was a White House correspondent and I see them do it for each other. They ask questions to get praise from each other, not because they're interested in the actual question. That's why all of us suffer. And so I really started to think about it. I'm like, who are these people who watch my show? Uber drivers, hotel clerks. Um, I mean, like, all, run the gamut from corporate people to uh, truly like working class, like construction workers and others. And I'm like, what do they want to know? And it's like, the more you do that, the more removed from Washington you get more and more and more. So like that process was hard because there would be like a development in the Mueller investigation. And my old news brain is like, oh, I should cover that. But I'm like, wait, nobody cares. I'm yeah. like, and, and the whole point of my punditry is that nobody should care. I'm like, yeah. who cares about that when the unemployment rate is like like this? And it's 
learning that process was was fun and now i'm pretty good at it now now like there should really be very little overlap between what the mainstream media is covering and what i'm covering unless i'm covering the way the mainstream media is like failing to tell you what's really going on yeah yeah is is there some sort of disconnect then between kind of two different worlds of politics and and i say this as someone who got interested in politics through primarily stuff on the internet, yeah. stuff on YouTube. Like, I don't think I knew what a lot of tradition... I didn't know what the Atlantic was until I was already, like... Interesting. ...a voter and, like, mm-hmm. involved in activism and everything. Uh, are those two entirely separate worlds? And and if that's the case, then, I mean, what's... Isn't isn't internet politics just kind of a playground that's its own closed-off ecosystem? What what leaks out? What actually, what influence does it have on the rest of the world? I would say our success shows the bridge. As in, there are, you're right, there are a lot of people who are just big on YouTube. Nobody cares what they have to say. Um, And there are a lot of people who are very big in DC, and nobody cares what they have to say. But the people who matter care what they have to say. And so I kind of look at it as my role as a bridging the gap and be like, look, I worked inside the system. Like I literally know what they care about, their biases, their assumptions, but I also understand what you care about. And I'm going to try and bridge the gap and be like, here's what's happening in DC and here's why I think it matters for you in your life. And if you don't agree, it's okay. No worries. Um, If you don't agree with my take. So it is, the problem is, look, you can make millions of dollars on YouTube and be really big without anybody in Washington knowing your name. And I try to split the difference. And I try to make the case to a lot of my audience. I'm like, look, electoral politics matters a lot. And if anything, you should understand what DC cares about. Because even though you may not care about the minutia of reconciliation or whatever i'm like they're about to rewrite law in a way that's very much going to impact your life so this is why i think you should care the problem is a lot of people on youtube in my opinion are deeply conspiratorial like in the wrong way like you should be very conspiratorial and skeptical um but i think in the right way and like that's kind of what i try and push people towards and so they just have no idea how the system works. So they go for the most convenient explanation. And I'm like, sometimes the explanation is worse than you think. It's incompetence, which more than likely is the answer. Yeah. Yeah, I think the the most recent example of this that was an example of electoral politics that had a lot of cachet on the internet was the primary in which Nina Turner was running. Oh, and it seemed yeah. like every oh, single like yeah. leftist was like, this yeah. is the hill we st-. She lost. Right. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. She and, lost big, yeah. too. And, and so... I don't see necessarily parallels for that on the right as much. I don't see a lot of investment in specific primaries. I think that's actually going to change this cycle. I, I think there's certain changes, people yeah. who have caught people's attention, like Joe Kent, like Judy mm-hmm. Vance and others. But I guess, what's the reception of your audience been when you try to bring someone like, you know, Rachel Bovard on your show to talk about what's actually going on on Capitol Hill? Or does it just fall on deaf ears? Does the clip do badly? Or how do people react? No, uh, Rachel's great. And actually, Rachel is a perfect example of the type of people I try to elevate, who are people who are inside the system, understand what's actually going on, can communicate it to a wider audience of here's why you should care. Look, I think too many people talk too much to their little ecosystem. And the leftist going all in on Nina Turner is a perfect example. Nobody cares about a primary in the middle of Ohio, except actual hardcore leftists. You know what Rachel does an excellent job of coming on my show and doing? She'll be like, look, I'm really concerned about censorship. Left, right, and center, here's why you should care. That's how you politically win arguments. And look, like I said, most of the people who watch my show are not political. I call it capital P political. 
They do not consider themselves Democrats or Republicans. A lot of them are extremely idiosyncratic in the way that they vote. They might have voted for Joe Biden, but consider themselves passionately pro-life. Or they might have voted for Donald Trump and consider themselves pro-choice, but don't care enough and mostly just hate libs. (laughs) Um, You know, that's how people are, man. Like, people are weird. And they would see no contradictions in everything that I just said. And that is okay. Trying to talk to them, this is something I really learned from Rogan more than anybody is I see him as a meta-political figure. And meta-politics is what drives everything right now. Engagement. Why did Trump win 10 million more votes? Nobody can answer that question. Um, Except for, honestly, like Trump himself and people who really understand culture as to why exactly his message resonated so much. Even Biden or, you know, any of these people. It's not about being doctrinaire. It's about, like, tapping into what really pisses people off and not too much of Washington is concerned with absolutely ancillary stuff that really does not speak to the main reason why most people are interested in politics at all. Yeah. Yeah. How do you conceive of your job in this ecosystem? Because coming up through a lot of institutions and you have a lot of friends in this town that would affiliate with like the conservative movement. Yeah. Do you consider yourself an activist in some way? Like how do you reconcile the things you believe in and want to see advanced with the nature of your job. Take myself out of it, try to be more of a communicator. Obviously I have my own opinions and I absolutely express them. That being said, for example, I did a a segment on my show today about Texas abortion. And I'm like, and I have a large leftist audience too. So I wanna be like, look guys, this isn't about what you think. This is about this law and the political fallout it may or may not have. And here are my most pro-life friends. Here's what they think in response to this argument advanced by Matthew Continetti and David French, right? I'm like, these are two warring things happening here in DC within the American political right. And I think you should care about that. That's what I do, right? And I think the biggest problem that we have is nobody presents the arguments of most people on the right in the best faith. Now, obviously, I'm not saying I give the best faith to libertarians, but I think they have plenty of communicators yeah. on their own side and they don't need me to do it. Although I will say I've probably become more libertarian, you know, in light of a lot of the lockdown regime. Yeah. So maybe they were right about some stuff and I'll say it. I'll be like, yeah, you guys were right. I think, you know, I probably should have been more sympathetic to this, this, and this back in June of 2020 or whatever. So totally willing to admit it. But really what it is, is like I said, I was inside the system. I try to represent that point of view to people because a lot of people will be like, I don't understand why, you know, this is happening. I'll be like, well, here's what I talk to the people on Capitol Hill and here's what they have to say. So you could take it for what you will, but that's what they say. So I really try to be more of like a honest, more like an interlocutor than anything else, because look, I have a, you know, educated background, all that. So like, I think that I can speak, I think people who may be more skeptical of other right-wing politics will at least be like, okay, I'll hear them out. Like I'll hear what these people are having to say. And I think that's a good thing. I think it's important to try and get um, that point of view to a lot of those people. When it comes to a primetime host on somewhere like Fox News, um, they have a, a audience that is maybe similarly dedicated as yours is, but it's a very different kind of audience, probably oh, much yeah. older. Right. Uh, they're probably much more likely to actually be voters. Yep. Um, and then kind of by consequence, they're a lot more partisan. Yep. And there's a criticism often made of people like primetime Fox hosts that you guys are essentially, you know, champions for the Republican Party or essentially partisan actors. 
how, how, how do you think you've been able to avoid it? Have you had pressure to, to lean in that direction and be a cheerleader for the right? And, and how do you react when, when people say you're not doing your job correctly on those terms? Well, I always enjoy that one because they presume to know my audience better than I know them. I'm like, I know who these people are and they don't want it. They, anything that reeks of partisanship like that, no, they absolutely want nothing to do with that. What the people want is to feel as if you're just being honest with them. And we all know all prime time. All, and look, I've done a lot of Fox News prime time. You get two minutes. You know what your job is. You're supposed to speak in a highly inflected voice, bark at the camera for two minutes. This is why Democrats and Joe Biden are bad. I also was sick of it. Like I, I was like, I don't want to do this. It's not a good way to communicate. The only substantive, I've probably done over 100 Fox News segments, and I'm only 29. So the people who are in their 50s and still doing this, I have no idea how you still do this. Um, and I think I did one, which I found truly substantive. And it was an accidental conversation around nationalism on a panel, which was four minutes long, and there were three other people there. How are you supposed to, how are you supposed to talk? It's not possible. And here's the deal. Most of the audience, they don't want to hear it, especially on Fox. That being said, that's only three million people. How many, At best, Tucker gets, what, four million? On the best night in all of cable. That's a lot. Don't get me wrong. But there's millions and millions and millions and millions of other people out there who are not looking for that, but are also what I call small P political, I talked about capital P, who are like, hey, you know, I'm really dissatisfied in the conditions of my life. You know, a story that came out today that we talked about on my show was young men are abandoning college. Why? That's a great question. I have no clue. I gave several theses. I was like, well, there's one answer. A lot of them are white. That's weird. A lot of them are working class. So there's some racial element here. There's like a working class element here. There's a major cultural implication for 60% of elites being women. I mean, like, that's kind of crazy. If you can think of a worse way to split our politics apart, it's just like a men's party and a women's party. <laughs> I can't think of anything worse. That's what's coming. You know, yeah. I know it is. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the data, yeah. you know, 50% of what? 50% of Latino men roughly voted yeah. for Trump? Yeah. Things are trending. You know, yeah. young black men are the most disproportionately likely to vote for Trump. Like, Already we're seeing this and just even more so. So I'm like trying to, you know, prime the audience. I'm like, just so you guys know, like things are moving in a very interesting direction. Yeah. Well, and uh, the funniest part about that story talking about establishment media was that yeah. a bunch of journalists, the, the line that they kept on caring about was, well, and this may make, you know, young white men more likely to embrace reactionary yeah, politics. Yeah, it's like, yeah. great. Okay. So the, yeah, but that's. The old true yeah you know, it's yeah. like but not but it's because of you yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like you radicalized yeah, me right. I, w I went yeah. to a giant liberal university in texas for four years and i walked out way more right wing than i came in oh, same. yeah, yeah. I mean, 100 yeah. well you went to school with gw kids right. who are sociopaths and yeah. also our future ruling class so it's true. sort of terrifying well to watch. they like to think so i don't know yeah. about that yeah. Yeah. yeah well go look at the staff list at dod uh -huh. and the state department it's pretty bad um so going back to your show, you have that you have this sense of what your audience wants. You have the sense of this, you know, changing political coalitions in the United States, and you grow the show rising to 1.3 million subscribers, and then you leave. Why? Um, I did not want to be attached. Crystal and I did not want to be attached to a corporate media organization anymore. Period. And look, there was a lot of uncomfortable, just like elements, and it's not their fault. They're doing their job. I just don't want to be a part of it. So, I mean, I've told this before, but like I did this entire series, you might remember this, about GOP staffers all going to go work for TikTok. 
Um, and it wasn't that hard to track them down. All you need is to know how to use LinkedIn. I started getting a lot of nice tips about former Paul Ryan staffers and former Kevin McCarthy staffers. And I called every single one of them out, including their top lobbyists. And um, they called my bosses saying that I was threatening their lives. Um, and I was, and I, you know, what do I want to say? Like, F you. Right? Like, I, I want to go out publicly and I want to make that public. But they're like, no, it's off the record. And I talked to them and blah, blah, blah. But I'm like, how dare you, you know, try and level that explanation? Or for example, like Maxine Waters, um, I said, and this is all I said. I said, Maxine Waters will be chairwoman of the Financial Service Committee till the day she dies. Here's why. Because I was talking about the seniority system in Congress. Yeah. That's it. Her, so they thought that was a call to assassinate her. press her. secretary <laughs> called my boss. No, here's the thing. It's all BS. They know that I wasn't threatening her life. Yeah. They want to threaten them because Maxine Waters is a very powerful person on Capitol Hill. They need quotes. They need her to do events with them. So that carries leverage. Now I'm like, go ahead. Say it. And now you know I'll light you up in public if you try and level this type of BS because I don't need anything from you. That's why I want to be independent. because I was also very sick of like Sagar's only saying this because you know the owner of the hill believes that I'm like listen that is not how I am but you know there's an uncomfortable truth there not even just by the it's like ownership advertisers I was really worried for a time they were taking money from uh, Huawei they were taking ads on Huawei and I'm like this is not what I'm about at all right like and I can't say anything I mean, I would be crazy to think that that didn't, you know, maybe enter my head a little bit in terms of my commentary. I just want to be 100% straight. So now everybody knows whatever I say, it's what I actually think. I'm not saying it for any, you know, corporate reason or whatever. It's just because this is what I believe and I'm lucky to have enough people who support our work that people know exactly who I'm beholden to. Isn't that instinct maybe one of the limitations of sort of the sort of populist sentiment is that... Ultimately, not everyone can be an independent creator completely free of any constraints. Like yeah. part of being human is living in structures Correct. that yes. you where you have pressures and influences and power is real. And again, it's it's the edge cases. It's the 1.3 million subscriber channel with an mm-hmm. extremely loyal audience that could separate off. But most people in most domains of life have to be part of an institution like this. I mean, how do you think about that instinct? And, and- I don't want them to do that. I don't yeah. want you to ruin your life. I tell people that all yeah. the time. They're like, should I speak out? I'm like, no. <laughs> I'm like, don't do it. Like, I'm like, live your life. Keep your thoughts to yourself. Um, if you want to go get involved in your local thing, you know, whatever. But like, don't start a revolt at work. It won't work out for you. You know? Don't pull I'm like, James to more. Exactly. I'm like, do not do that. That's not... Look, like, it's my job. Like, I'll speak on your behalf. You know, like, I'll take the outrage when people are mad and, like, write their little hit pieces. It's all good. That You know, it's all my job description. You're normal. Like, you don't want that. Um, And so that's what I tell them. And you're right, which is that part of the thing people might extrapolate is like, oh, I should go out and be super outspoken. Yeah, well, maybe. But, like, you know, like, if if you got a job, like, you got a nice thing going, maybe get married, you know, focus on your wife and your kids and like, you're going to be much happier. Like I promise. Mm -hmm. So yes, you're correct. Which is that where people should focus their attention and more. Look, I also just feel like people vote. Like a lot of people don't vote and it's unfortunate. And a lot of people have very, very skewed and weird ways of looking at politics. And, you know, a lot of politics, like I said, is becoming like weirdly metacultural in what I think is a very poisonous manner, um, which actually doesn't lead to any better electoral outcomes, unfortunately. And so, yeah, I mean, 
it's it's very hard, I think, for a lot of people out there right now. I, I really feel for them. I do. I don't know what I would do if I was chained to a desk yeah. or a cubicle. Well, that going to vote yeah. point, I think, is is the key there because I remember the distinct point at which I sort of pivoted from like watching YouTube videos all day to being like, okay, I'm actually going to go do something outside. Mm. And and I had a lot of friends at the time who who they just they just kept watching YouTube videos yeah. and like. Yeah. I mean, what what uh, th- that to me is is what causes the divide between the two worlds of like internet politics and real world politics is that ultimately these people are so black pilled on, you know, on on political life that they don't actually want to participate in it. And in fact, they've created this entire social hierarchy where the more you participate in actual politics, the less cool. Yeah, you are. you're like lame, right? Yeah, I get that. And you know, people are always like. <laughs> Why does Sarah care about voting? I'm like, what do you mean? Are you, like, are you crazy? You know, I'm like, yeah, I'm like, do you see how this is? I'm like, the only the reason you have, we have the system we deserve. And it's because the people who vote are all old, have interest to protect, and all believe some really dumb things, mm. in my opinion. And most politicians today know that they can get away with, if you're a Democrat, all you have to do is own Trump, and you're going to get elected. That's it. Nothing. If you're a Republican, all you have to do is become a star on Fox News. You will raise millions of dollars pulling absolutely stupid ass stunts. And how you vote does not matter whatsoever. And you know why? They are playing into the system which we have created. If people who actually care came out and voted, they would behave differently. But they don't. And they're right to do so. Like, when I call them out, you know, some of them get mad and they contact me and like, they're like, uh, and I'm like, listen, I'm not saying you're not doing what's right for you. I'm like, but I'm not saying that's good for the country either. Like I told, if I was a Republican politician, I would be doing the exact same thing. That's how you get big. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene is doing everything correctly in the way that she should in order to become famous, pull some Michelle Bachman or whatever, pull like 10% in the Iowa caucuses and have her endorsement matter and become a fundraising juggernaut. Great. Good for you. I totally get it. It's more a question of like, okay, if you actually want to do something, which, you know, that is where I think, you know, the nihilism comes into play. I don't know how to fix it. I I wish I could. I'm, I'm doing my own part. I think, but I'm not going to pretend that it's like some overwhelming, you know, change in politics. Is the populist left-right alliance stuff also a barrier to that? Because it seems like the most of the things that the left and right populists can agree on are things they don't like yeah, and how to right. tear them down. And yeah, I mean, like there are some policy implications for tearing things down. I mean, like antitrust is a great example. Yeah, Let's shatter yeah. Google into a trillion right. pieces. That's the policy implication of tearing things down. But that's not governing agenda antitrust yes. alone isn't i mean what do you think the limitations are from in some ways the the alliance that is represented in a show like yours uh when it comes to actually governing well i don't believe in a populist left right alliance yeah. and neither does crystal yeah. uh it's so it's funny people always think that I, i'm advocating that and i absolutely don't um same thing in the book it's never actually been said Re- the thesis of the show is that there are shared critiques um and that all we want is for people to it eat listen if people could accept America's working class is broke and has been screwed over the last 30 years, I'll stop. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> that's it. I mean, that's fine, right? Yeah. That's all I want. I want the critique to be shared, not left, right, like just generally. If we can start off from America's experience in Afghanistan has been a disaster, America's working class has been screwed over over the last 40 years, America's trade deals and the way it conducts itself abroad has been bad for the body populace as a whole, cool, all right? Like that, I'd be happy. Go ahead and find me people in D.C. They may say that. Do they actually believe it? And so 
On the policy, no, I've never believed that there's any ground whatsoever. One side has to win. That's it, period. And really what I think is that uh, I think people presume that a shared critique means shared policy goal. That is not the point of my show whatsoever. That's not the point of you know what I say or, or any of that. So really, whenever we're talking there, people will say, you don't understand my incentives. And I'm like, no, 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 I do. I just think it's bad. Um, and, and it was like, I, and, and I'm saying so. Like I'm saying explicitly, I think this is bad um, because I want a new system, but I'm an actor outside of that system. So I have the privilege of being able to say that. It's just that you don't. And usually a lot of the frustration is, is like, you can't be honest and I actually can. Yeah. So, so yeah. I think one example yeah. where there may be some overlap is this Afghanistan withdrawal. Uh, people have been very angry with you, at least people in, in oh, professional yeah. Washington, uh, when it comes to your takes. They've been angry at us for our takes. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your read on the situation? I have never been more blackpilled on the American <laughs> political right yeah. than Afghanistan. I lived, Sarab, through four or five years of America's back, America first, Screw these globalists. Screw the media. Um, we're getting out. And, you know, I, I can't tell you how much chess-beating rhetoric I heard from these people. And me, like a fool, believed them. And then, all of a sudden, Afghanistan, Joe Biden does what Donald Trump should have done a long time ago. And now everybody's like an Iraq war hawk again. Uh, they all care about... Afghan interpreters all of a sudden or like dual Afghan American citizens like I saw people out there who not even a couple of years ago were talking America first and are now like big feminists in terms of Afghanistan I'm like excuse me I thought the entire thing was about Afghan reconstruction was a total failure and a projection of fake American power and not really what we're about we should be using our military for other purposes and let's just go ahead and head off the, well, I wanted to get out, but, you know, not like this. Yeah. Uh, okay, so what you're saying, and this is what I don't agree with, they're like, we should have occupied the city of Kabul. I'm like, stop. Do you hear yourself? <laughs> do, do you do you hear yourself? Yeah. I remember Fallujah. I remember every other time, Baghdad, when America tried to occupy a city full of sectarian strife in the middle of a radical Islamic enemy. You know what happened? Hundreds of American soldiers died. Not worth it. It's just not worth it. And I don't know why they can't be honest about their position. These people, many MAGA people in particular, have been gaslit into thinking that there was some perfect withdrawal out of Afghanistan where no American soldiers were killed, all American citizens and interpreters and all these people could get out, and the Taliban didn't take over. If you believe that, you just don't know anything about Afghanistan. I've covered it now literally decades um that's my entire early political career early you know journalism career and more this was probably as good as it was ever going to get i'm frankly amazed they were even able to get a hundred thousand people out um and that the afghan government didn't collapse sooner our only mistake was not being more cynical enough um so i applaud the trump administration for negotiating that deal with the taliban took a lot of heat for that actually too at the time i was like you're hey. inviting the taliban to yeah camp i was like David. good yeah i'm like you know how you end wars you shake hands with the people who slaughtered your troops and you both unhappy about it and then you walk out because you're better off back here than people getting killed and it's like the way they what they used this was made me so angry those 20 20 21 year olds who got blown to bits. Let's be honest about what really happened here, right? These people are blown up by a suicide bomb. It's ugly. 
All right, I've actually seen what it looks like whenever these types of things happen. And they use their deaths to agitate for more deaths abroad. And, you know, it's it's sickening because most American, many Americans, political Americans, have somehow been convinced of a fake reality where withdrawing from the country would have just been like the greatest thing ever. And those people have not been honest, which is that the policy they were advocating for would have meant more dead American soldiers. If you can live with that, okay, you go to the American people and say 200 American soldiers are going to die at various checkpoints around the city of Kabul so that we can get our interpreters out in a more timely fashion. I say screw that. That's a family version, uh, family-friendly version of my articulation about that policy. So I don't think people, a lot of people have learned anything, and they've just used like reflexive... Um, partisanship get in the way of what this is what it looks like it's not good saigon wasn't pretty was there a better way this is my other thing people are like oh this is just like saigon i was like what are you saying we should stay in, in north <laughs> south vietnam are you they crazy yes yeah i know no i know exactly so i'm like it, be honest i'm like you think we should have stayed in south vietnam no that was insane yeah um and so yeah, there's just been this fake reality that's been conjured and there's been so much dishonesty. There's been a new neocon like MAGA alliance and it's a travesty, honestly, because we should have had an actual agreement. We're like, no, this is probably how it was always going to go. Yeah, it is a disaster. And instead, you know, they wanted to score political points, which it did work, to be clear. It works a lot when you have the media on your side, but yeah. don't get used to it. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I think all the wrong lessons have been learned from this war. Yeah. Well, and it's so weird, right? Because there's the people who want to distinguish. Well, I, I would have supported withdrawal, but yeah. not like this. The, the convenient thing is, is that so many of those people were the people opposing withdrawal for yes, so long. And exactly. so it's like, I'm not inclined to take you seriously if you've been opposing withdrawal for the last 20 years. I'm Correct. just not. Like, I feel like your argument's a little bit bad faith. Yeah, all, all these commentary magazine folks, they're like, oh, the withdrawals is that. I'm like, you didn't want to withdraw. <laughs> and, and this is the thing. Their experience in Afghanistan, the policies that they have pushed, the thousands of American lives, who knows how many Afghans, all the money the wasted credibility, and they have the gall to criticize somebody else? If you're for that, I don't want to hear a thing about what you have to say about Afghanistan. And yet, they are—they have zero discomfort with American blood being spilt overseas for no reason. None. And they will never be honest with the American people about that. That's what drives me so crazy. And then what made me really upset was watching MAGA people who should know better falling for a lot of this stuff, let's be honest, for retweets, yeah. for political points. And I'm like, okay, you made your bed. You, you're you in the bed now with the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who I thought we all hated yeah. because of critical race theory. Yeah. What's going on here? You're basically being a... I saw people unironically being like, Joe Biden didn't listen to the CIA. I was like... <laughs> What do we all just live through, people? Yeah. Like, do I not remember a couple of years ago, the deep state? I mean, these things, I don't like Joe Biden and I didn't vote for him. But like, look, that doesn't mean that if the guy doesn't make a good policy, uh, uh, doesn't make a good decision in one form, that I'm not going to support it. It's just, it's totally maddening. Um, and watching the reflexive partisanship around all of it is just just so disturbing to me because I know, and I think you do too, the professional elements in Washington who will use that sentiment to push way worse policy 
then what would have come from this type of decision? Yeah. So there you go. Well, and I think the weirdly enough, um, the Taliban uh, has a pretty good incentive at this point in time to make sure as few Americans yes. are hurt uh, right now as possible because they know that the American foreign policy establishment is on a hair trigger Correct. looking for an excuse to go back exactly in. Right. Um, and, and this whole situation, I think, goes to the responsibility that the media has. And I, I it gets a little bit tricky here because on the left, this is always perverted and twisted to become activist journalism. But the responsibility of the media in a situation like this would have been to take what happened in this withdrawal, compare it to a set of possibilities that could have happened with right. any withdrawal, as opposed to comparing it solely to some sort of perfect situation, which has no historical analog. I was, I was, I was at a party this weekend, yeah. and I was talking to um, this girl who's like a history major, and this mm -hmm. is a big thing. And and she was just like, she was mouthing off. She was like, yeah. I think this withdrawal was done poorly and everything. I was All like, right. great. Give me one historical analog for. Uh, your vision of a good withdrawal. Mm -hmm. Couldn't come up with them. There is none. <laughs> who who gets to lose a war on your terms? Yeah. The hubris to think that is unbelievable. And as you said, here, here look, there, here's the real realm of options. Already Biden made a mistake by not withdrawing in May of 2020. Yeah. Actually, if we had started the withdrawal then, as we should have, then we probably could have gotten more people out. Yeah. That's a legit criticism. You see anybody actually making that criticism yeah. about withdrawing earlier? No, because it's fake. Yeah. They don't actually agree with withdrawal. Here's the other one. Now, the Taliban are outside of Kabul. Everybody's pointing to a meeting happening between the CENTCOM commander and the Taliban's foreign representative, where the Taliban were like, either you can control the city or we can. And they're like, see, we should have controlled it. Okay, <laughs> once again, we had multiple checkpoints of people that, of the Taliban that, were there, that they controlled and an ISIS fighter still got through. Now imagine that we controlled the three checkpoints out forward. Yeah. How many Americans do you think would have died we lost 13 in a single attack. Yeah. We would have had 10, 15. While if, also creating this like big shiny object that terrorists like, would us defend our honor and every, our nation. Every suicide bomber in the region would have gotten in a car, packed it full of C4, dynamite, or whatever, and drove it straight towards an American checkpoint. That's what they did in Baghdad. That's what they did in Iraq. That's what they did in Afghanistan. Any veteran of these wars can tell you the same thing. They all experienced what it's like to be shot at and to be bombed while you're at a checkpoint. Actually, if you remember that, uh, what was that guy's name? Kazir Khan, his son who yeah. died. That's how he died in yeah. Iraq at a checkpoint. That's yeah. how it works. And that's what happens when American soldiers have to take control of this city. They will never be honest about what they were actually wanted. It's like, frankly, miracle. We only lost 13 people in this operation. And the alternative was surrounding the city of Kabul again with American soldiers or relying on the Afghans. Ooh, what did we learn about them? Yeah. They've been bilking us for 20 years and been stealing our money and cashing it all in Dubai. They're the president <laughs> flies off with $170 million in cash. Yeah. And this guy used to work at the World Bank. Yeah. Okay. Columbia so, PhD. Good for yeah, Best exactly. And Columbia PhD. Yeah, thank you, Columbia. For, Repairing uh, a broken world was the title of his book. I, I know. Think. You know Afkash, Ashraf Ghani is one of the biggest grifters of all time because yeah. he gaslit the people here are very comfortable with him. He's like, oh yeah, like I remember he used to come here. What did he talk about all the time? Girls in school. Every single time. These are the biggest idiots on the planet. They'll shell out trillions of dollars as long as you like hold up like twelve Afghan girls that went to school. And look, yeah. I feel bad for them. I do. But you know what? If enough people want to take up arms in Afghanistan to make sure they can go to school, they're welcome to. Guess what? They don't care. 
And we can't do anything about that. Yeah. I'm sorry. I feel bad for them. But what are you going to do? Yeah. Ultimately, the world's largest military power, trillions of dollars, were not able to turn the few people in Afghanistan right. that cared enough to fight against the Taliban into a sane fighting force. That's correct. And... I mean, and it's funny because uh, they would look at the alternatives you just said and be like, great, so we shouldn't leave at all. <laughs> it's like, I know. Yeah. <laughs> people are going to die in that situation. That's enough. Let me just address that, too, yeah. because everybody's like, see, no American had died since February 2020. Yeah, because Trump signed a peace deal with them in February of 2020. The that was year, the John Podhortz. <laughs> I heard it constantly. And guess what? Uh, right before that. 20 Americans had died in Afghanistan in 2019. 40-something Americans were killed under Trump's watch in Afghanistan. You, do they hear about Do you hear about any of them? I wrote some of their obituaries. I remember them. 19, 20 years old. Stepped on IEDs. Gone. The media didn't care. Nothing. Most of these people didn't care at all. They wanted to continue that for years. Their sustainable status quo was a fake military, trillions of dollars, and 25 to 30 American boys and girls stepping on IEDs per year, getting blown to nothing, and their parents crying in solitude because the media doesn't care and life goes on. I call that a disaster and unsustainable, way more so than what happened over the last couple of weeks. Well, and that was the other choice that the media made. They could have chosen not to cover this fairly. They didn't. Instead, they've chosen to punish Joe Biden with yeah, this. And right. I think it's reflected in his approval rating over the last couple oh, yeah, of weeks. It's a disaster. Um, right. And 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 it's weird because it's it's MSNBC, it's CNN. Like they have decided, no, you don't get mm -hmm. to do this. Our friends at the UN are very upset about this whole situation. Well, you should be even more, more blackpilled about that because yeah. what does that tell you? Is that it works? Propaganda yeah. works, man. I mean, everybody. It's so funny. Everybody on the right understands propaganda works until it's on their side. Yeah. And I'm like, no, you don't want this. What if Trump was in office? There's no way that his people would have been able to withstand this amount of media Oh, pressure. there'd be an impeachment. Yes, correct. Instantly. That's what I'm saying. You yeah. do, do you want that? Yeah. Do you want to set the conditions for that? A Republican could very easily win the 2024 election. Frankly, I would bet on it right now, yeah. given the way that uh, Joe Biden's presidency is going. I think we're about to see one of the biggest midterm waves for Republicans since 2010, if not more so. And yet- these people don't understand that whenever it's turned on you and some of the stuff you care about, you're going to be dead too. Why would you empower the, the don't feed the beast? That's like the number one rule of all of this. But, you know, people like the, the temporary yeah. hits. Yeah. What can I say? The leftists are being reasonable for once. Yeah, it's right. like, no, they're not. No, they're, it's like they're really not. <laughs> yeah. like, it's, yeah. their, it's their same buddies at the State yeah. Department that undermine right. the Trump presidency for four years that are like, this can never happen. Correct. <laughs> right. Which which makes it even more blackpilling because it's a uniparty and they really believe some of their stuff, right? They're not just democratic apparatchiks. It'd actually be easier if they were, but yeah. they're not. They have a real ideology. That ideology is what's destroyed, destroyed the country. Yeah. <laughs> What have you made about the Biden administration more broadly? I mean, his approval rating was slowly declining even before the Afghanistan thing. Yeah, I, I think COVID just nuked him. And I think that, and you know, the biggest mistake I made before the election was believing some of the polling around lockdowns. Yeah. And if you're looking at a lockdown poll today, it's like 50-50. And the Crystalline Saga rule is add seven to 10 for Republican support, which means I think that then uh, Joe Biden is underwater. The biggest mistake he made was listening to the public health regime mm -hmm. around mask mandates, all this vaccine mandates, all of it. People are done. What people don't understand is people don't care anymore about COVID. Mm -hmm. And that's just not reflected whatsoever in the public health regime, the Biden administration, 
All he had to do, he actually did what he had to do. He passed those $2,000 checks and he got pretty decent amount of the population vaccinated and whoever doesn't want to be vaxxed it's like okay that's on you um and why is that not enough i don't understand but then they turned it into this whole like no we have to get to covid zero you know we have to have everybody vaxxed in the country even if they don't want to be (laughs) booster shots and then they screwed that up somehow nobody knows what to believe i don't believe fauci i don't believe dr walensky for a second they actually would have us all in masks and in lockdowns for the next five years in australia like they if they had their way and so now they want to keep kids and now they're out there arguing that there's no detriment whatsoever to masks on children. That's sick. That's a sickness. And it's like that alone destroyed his presidency. I think it's over. Honestly, yeah. I think it already is over. Like, I really believe the presidencies last in the modern age, like six months. Trump, obviously, you know, spent that on tax cuts. Great. <laughs> um, and so. Well, and then he got uh, a little bit of a reprieve with criminal justice that's right at the sorry, end of the- <laughs> sorry. i forgot about that they you know the only other uh, major accomplishment was letting people out of prison which is of course super popular um and so you take that all together and with biden it's over like i think yeah maybe you'll get his reconciliation thing whatever joe manchin and kirsten cinema people don't care you can't buy your way out of this one it's over and look i believe very strongly in material politics but you have to meet people where they are before you can have some material politics in terms of economic benefit and the public health regime has screwed this up in a way that they have lost all credibility the lockdowns the vaccine mandates the outdoor mass mandates all that stuff it's going to kill him. I, I really do. And But the mistake, though, is that people are going to say that it was because of Afghanistan. It's like, yeah. no. What has contributed to the feeling is that Biden's main selling point was, I'm not Trump. It's not going to be chaotic anymore. Except by listening to the public health people, plus the media propaganda on Afghanistan, plus a lot of just the metacultural political stuff like critical race theory and more, it's like, you're dead, man. I, yeah. I, I, I would... I look at that. I look at this as right now one of the most vulnerable presidencies that we've seen since Obama in 2010. Yeah. And it's his own fault. You said earlier that yeah. the COVID lockdowns have made you feel more libertarian than you once were. Mm-hmm. I, I almost feel like that that's not the right way to think about it because I I don't I oppose the lockdowns and I've opposed them from pretty early on, but I don't feel like that speaks to being more libertarian. I think it, it speaks to just recognizing that our ruling class doesn't know what they're talking about sure. and don't deserve to rule us. That is entirely sad. I mean, how has your perspective on COVID changed throughout the process? Because I know at various points you've yeah. been more or less consonant with, especially the right and and the attack that they've taken on it. Walk us through how your thinking has changed. I was very against the initial early anti-lockdown push because look, COVID was real. Like COVID actually was a threat to elderly people. Like, and it was really bad. And so I was, and and their entire theory of the case was we need to be anti-lockdown so we're not pro-spending. So remember, again, who were the ones who were pushing this? They opposed the COVID bailouts. And so the CARES Act. And so they wanted then to end the lockdown. But as we saw endlessly, Ending of lockdown policy, as you saw in Texas, very early on, whenever it opened up, did business come back? No, it didn't come back at all. Why? Because people were afraid of COVID. So that has now changed. That's so, look, I I really look at it as very much like I'm trying to put myself like, where is the dead center? I think like of the country on this. I think at March, I think it was March, 2020, whenever the initial anti-lockdown phase, I was like, no way, man. Like, this is crazy. This is not where the people were. 
The mistake that I made was thinking that that March 2020 credibility that at least some of the public health people had by November, I thought that they still had it. And again, that was totally just because of polling. I mean, the polling was totally wrong. It was off by 25, 30 points whenever it came to lockdowns. And that is what made me realize, I'm like, wait a second. So not only was the country fed up in November, but now when I see a poll, which is like, barely pro lockdown or pro like mass in school i'm like i don't believe it i don't believe it for a second not one second right because a i know about the missed things in polling but look i mean like i said if i had been more and i i gave those people as much credibility as i possibly could on the public health and more but by i think by september or so i was like oh fauci's actually a liar i'm like (laughs) i'm like this is crazy right well it's really sad because there's, the medical people are supposed to be the one functioning part of the government. I was like, I was like, man, like he's lying about herd immunity, about all this and the lab leak stuff started, you know, had already been there, but like came out even more. And I was like, this is crazy. And so that has really what, and again, I, I, libertarian, anti-elite, whatever you want to call it. But like that really made me much more of a guarantor of, I was like, okay, we need to have real safeguards in place so that this stuff doesn't happen again. I'm like, because if they did this for a disease with a 99.9% survival rate, I'm like, what the hell are we going to do with some sort of contagion 5% or even Spanish flu, which was what, yeah. like 2%. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it is, I, I think that the entire West would have utterly collapsed if this was a disease that children would die from. Yeah, I agree. Like it, it no, would have been I agree. I agree. disaster. Yeah, like civilization would have been collapsed. Really bad, right? um, like it, it would not have gone well. Um, I'm curious, has has all of this changed your perspective on, say, like someone, regular person not involved in politics who is skeptical of something like vaccines? Oh, I have a huge anti-vax audience, yeah. actually. I talk <laughs> to them every day, and I'm like trying to convince them otherwise. I get it. Like, yeah. I get it, right? Like, this is the thing. My whole show is about corruption of power, elites, and why the media is bad. And so when millions of people don't believe them, I'm like, look, man, I understand. Like, I, I get where you're coming from. And I did a whole thing on this today, which is that part of the problem is that the people who are pro-vax are not honest, which is that, look, I got the vaccine and I also got COVID. And like, if you had listened to the people months ago, they would have told you that's impossible. Yeah. It's not impossible. Yeah. So we have to be honest about that. Why, if you're young, why should you get vaccinated? Well, it's not a clear-cut case of like, you get vaccinated, you're not going to get COVID. Actually, I did get COVID. Here's the deal. I was always probably going to be fine from COVID because I'm young. So what's really the case? Well, the case is population-wide, it does decrease infection with Delta, which means I'm not going to spread it to somebody else, which means that by doing it, it's more of a social service than it is something for my own personal protection, given the fact that hospitalization and death for a healthy 29-year-old male was always incredibly mm-hmm. unlikely. That's not that's not nearly as effective as a case as you're not going to get COVID if you get vaccinated. And people are just not honest. That, that's the problem. There's no honesty around COVID, around the COVID vaccine, around like why people should get vaccinated. It's just like, do what you're told. And millions of people are like, no, I'm not going to. Yeah. Uh, and that is where, you know, things get really tricky. I'm very much for, especially people who have been screwed over by the system, speak to them with compassion. Um, and that's the best way that you can possibly, that you can get, you know, a real, a better societal outcome, like more people getting vaccinated because it is bad for people who are old. Look at the Israel data. Like there's actually a lot of old people in, in Israel and more who are still getting sick. Like we want and should want to prevent that. Now I'm not saying everybody should wear a mask. I'm saying 
there's a vaccine that a billion and a half people have taken. Seems fine to me. Um, like, you know, if they're really, what they thought was happening with ivermectin, it's like this anti-vax people, they also believe that. There's like millions of people showing up purely because of the vaccine. Um, look, I think the way we should think about it is it will decrease your like likelihood of infection and if you do get infected, you have a near certainty that you won't die or get hospitalized. It's not a bad reason to take it. So. Although the media is very good at, you know, putting out these stories, you know, healthy 16-year-old girl hospitalized from COVID. And then yeah. you click on it, the picture is like, oh, she's 600 pounds. Yeah, I don't know right. What exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah. They're like children dying of COVID. I'm like, yeah, they had lymphoma. And, and, and listen, I feel bad. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Does that people have lymphoma? Like, you know. They, a lot of them get sick and die. Like, yeah. that's sad. Yeah. How do you know it wouldn't have been the flu or common cold? Like, you don't, you know? Especially, with, I think you're right, though, about the kids. If this was killing kids, we'd be on lockdown for the next 10 years. Yeah, well, and we, I think we still will be. I mean, I, I don't know what date I'd be willing to bet any money on that masks are no longer required in airplanes. I Oh, yeah, I was talking about this. I was thinking five years. I yeah. think five years minimum. Um, it's a pain in the ass, yeah. especially when I just flew internationally. And uh, it sucks. It sucks wearing a mask on a plane yeah. for that long. It's terrible. You can't sleep. You can't do anything. So yeah. whatever. Well, and and airports and airlines are like the apex of security theater in the right. United States. So, so like anything that like like I that's a good point. Like there's still announcements playing on airport, um, like you know, whatever the the overhead voices, um, and that that are like. 10 years old yeah, like, yeah because of recent right, regulation right. it's like right. that regulation's from 2006 yeah, like uh, three actually yeah. yeah um and it's it's not going to change anytime soon i think um i think that there's a a temperamental distinction that that would divide someone like you and the way that you think about the kind of anti-vax crew than almost anyone else in dc um, yeah, certainly sure. on the left maybe less so on the right although you see some of it here which is like do you like the reality of the skepticism that most of the country has about all sorts of things right um like people believe all sorts of wacky things you know for instance there's people in washington dc who believe tax cuts create jobs um mm -hmm. you know but but out in the country you know they may believe things like the vaccine is bad for them maybe they're right i think that some of that's still out there um how do you how do you feel apart from the rest of your media class because of your fundamentally different temperament towards your audience yeah well it's funny i mean uh, I have, I try to do this with everything. So it's not just right and it's also left. I mean, a lot of them. There's a lot of lefty conspiracy theorists too, yeah. you know? Like, Anti-vax stuff yeah. was a left oh, thing yeah. for a long time. Oh, yeah. It was like time. a hippie mom thing, yeah. you know, for yeah. a long time. Yeah. And look, I try to come at it always from the same thing and be like, I understand why you believe that. I get it. Here's why I disagree. If you still disagree, it's all good. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think less of you. Personally, I think you should make a different choice. It's okay. Um, and I think that that is where... People just hate being talked down to. And they especially, like I was talking about the whole thing about like, look, if you get get vaccine, you still might get COVID. Um, who, who says that? Nobody will even say that. It's like they try to hide it, you know, and try to the breakthrough case numbers yeah. and all that. Just be honest, like be honest with people, especially now. Most of the people who trusted you enough to get it were already going to get it. So now, who are you talking to? You're talking to people who have deep distrust in the system. And so how are you going to do that? Is this through mandates? I don't think so. By sending a YouTube yeah. influencer to the White House to take a bunch of videos. Yeah, right. Whoever the, I forget, who the hell was that guy? I don't even know. That's the other thing. That guy's audience, they're all vaxxed. What yeah. was the point? Yeah. The, Olivia Rodrigo, guarantee you she didn't convince anybody on the fence. Yeah. Really? You should go out and you should find some people, some people like me or more, whoever. Yeah. 
big anti-vax audiences. And Go find Toby Keith. <laughs> but here's the thing, right? I don't even me talking to Biden that wouldn't do anything. Yeah. They don't trust him. Yeah. Like they trust people who my view is independent of Biden. I've been pro-vax since Trump, and one of the segments I did at the time was. Sh- going after Kamala Harris yeah. for saying she wouldn't trust a Trump vaccine yeah. and Joy Reid and all these people. So you just got to be consistent. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that you and Crystal have been very good at is sensing sort of emergent trends before they hit the mainstream. Um, you know, I think this was the case for following, you know, bloggers on the internet uh, in January of 2020 because you knew about COVID yeah. earlier yeah, than wait, most of them did. Yeah. Um, and, and so what's the... What's the one or two things that you're looking at right now that the mainstream is not paying attention to that are going to be extremely relevant a year from now or two years from now? I've been on Lab League from the beginning. That's never going away. I mean, it's become like kind of mainstream now, so that's not really one. Uh, Just on that, I get yeah. worried that like I almost don't want that to become like a fully mainstream consensus because I know that the neocons in this town will be like, great, we have to go to war with China. Yeah, right. That's a good point. I <laughs> yeah. mean, look, they'll ruin everything, so yeah. whatever. Uh, Lab League is definitely one. I think the biggest story in right now in the country is just what I was talking about, the disconnect on COVID. We have got to find, I call it like COVID centrism. I stole that from Kurt Mills, where it's like most people are dispositionally like kind of pro-vax. Like, look, 70% of people have had one dose. Mm-hmm. So it's not the majority of people are anti-vax. Kind of pro-vax, anti-lockdown. That's like, if you can square that, you win. If you can't, you'd lose. Mm-hmm. Dems are on the other side. Some Republicans, I would say, lean a bit too hard into the anti-vax stuff. But like DeSantis and Abbott are the people who are really pushing pro-vaccine at the same time being skeptical of COVID. I'm like, that's the dead center. That's exactly mm-hmm. where things are. And I think the midterms are going to be a huge reckoning for Biden and for the Democrats, which is that if you piss people off, piss people off enough, especially on the critical race theory front, um, especially on the lockdowns and more, they, no matter how much money you throw at them, they're going to say, screw you. You're screwing up my life. So I think that's a big, that's the biggest story in the country, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we will see. Uh, yeah. And you cover all this stuff uh, three times a week on right. your show, Breaking Points. It's had enormous success, I guess, just as a final thing. I yeah. mean, what's been that experience like going independent? That's fun, man. It's a lot of fun. Um, I was saying before, it's hard being a businessman. Like an, I'm turning one of these boomers um, who's like, do you have any idea how hard it is to run a small business <laughs> in this country? But it's true. It yeah. is actually hard yeah. um, to figure out taxes or whatever, who you owe. And uh, oh, it's amazing how many people come out of the woodwork and all these vendors and everybody gets paid before you get paid. Yeah, It's okay. It's been a great experience and it's worth the freedom. So it's yeah. been a lot of fun. That's awesome. Where yeah. can people find uh, more about you, everything you're doing, Sagar? Yeah, Breaking Points on YouTube, The Realignment Podcast, at eSagar, Twitter, Instagram, all of that. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, man. This week, because I don't have the constraints of a co-host who's going to call me on my BS, I decided I would read from a Twitter thread that I had uh, made uh, last week. Now, I promise this actually relates to a lot of the stuff we tend to talk about in these roundups, but this week I wanted to talk about a news story that happened last week uh, in the aftermath of Texas passing a heartbeat abortion bill, which is a bill that would prevent 
legal abortions after uh, about a six-week mark, basically when a fetal heartbeat is detected. Many of uh, the biggest corporations in Texas, including Uber and Lyft, announced you know a variety of different uh, supporting measures for what they call to be women's rights, which I would instead call to be the slaughter of the unborn. Specifically, uh, I think Uber and Lyft announced um, you know hundreds of thousands, even millions of dollars of donations that they were giving to Planned Parenthood, as well as giving broad legal immunity to any drivers that may be prosecuted under uh, this bill and and so on, basically rubbing their thumbs and uh, in the noses of Texas Republicans who they had actually come to for, for a lot of favors not too long ago. Uh, rewinding a little bit, um, I used to work quite a bit in Texas politics. In fact, my first legislative session was in the summer uh, and spring of 2017. During that year, uh, there was a bill that was uh, um, put up to, quote unquote, legalize Uber and Lyft across the state. Now, legalize who had made Uber illegal. Well, rewinding even further, in December of 2015, the city of Austin, and indeed many city councils across the country, were considering uh, fingerprinting measures for uh, ride-sharing companies. This was in response to a spate of sexual assaults that had been happening um, on uh, on these ride-sharing apps over the past previous months. And so there were lots of places that were considering saying that, you know, like taxi drivers, like bus drivers, like so many other things, um, we should ask that ride-sharing apps have to fingerprint their drivers before uh, they can ride legally. Um, you know, uh, the merits of this policy are mixed. Um, you know, whether or not it would have actually helped make things more secure, I don't know. But it would seem like a fairly reasonable measure. Uh, Uber and Lyft did not like this. Uh, and so after Austin passed the ordinance, they immediately went into overdrive trying to prevent it from happening, eventually trying to do a uh, a ballot proposition in Austin uh, that would either ratify or strike down this ordinance requiring fingerprinting. And so Uber and Lyft combined spent $8 million, uh, an enormous sum of money. And I remember being in Austin at the time, uh, seeing the flyers and the block walkers and everyone else constantly uh, advertising for uh, repealing this ordinance. Now, if any of you have ever been to Austin, uh, keep Austin weird, although it has been taken over by some corporate interest, is still uh, very dominant as a way of thinking about the world. And so the uh, you know, left-wing hippies in Austin did not take very kindly to these multi-billion-dollar corporations telling them what they what to do, and so they rejected uh, the overturning of that ballot proposition, 56 to 44. Really, a, a landslide, and almost 100,000 people voted in a completely off-year election. It was it was really incredible. And so what happened then? Uh, Texas Republicans went into overdrive, trying to be the party of liberty and markets and freedom again. Uh, you can support this uh, policy on the merits or you can oppose this policy on the merits. But what immediately happened is that Republicans expended an enormous amount of political capital, made it one of their biggest priorities for that upcoming legislative session, the legislative session in 2017, um, to preempt statewide any law that would prevent Uber and Lyft uh, from operating or put any restrictions on them. And uh, not only did they uh, do that, but they essentially codified in a fairly cronyist way Uber and Lyft's business model into law, saying, if you're going to do ride sharing, this is the way you're going to do it. And oh, isn't it so convenient that that just so happens to be the way that these very big companies with very, very powerful lobbying arms are doing it. And so eventually the bill passed and Governor Greg Abbott signed it into law um, the second he could. Uh, and its enactment date was even unusually uh, the day that it was passed. And so uh, the bill went into effect. And so Republicans once again proved themselves to be 
the Renta Party. Uh, this is a concept that Julius Krein has written about uh, before. It's a piece that we have on Amcanon. I believe it's called Can Conservatism Be Anything More Than a Grudge? Um, the biggest corporations in the country, these giant tech companies, Uber and Lyft, came to Texas. They expected the right to roll over and do what they asked in the name of markets. They created a cronious solution that only benefits them. Republicans got to dance about their principles. And then these companies come back around, spit in their face and say, great, now we're going to appease our leftist overlords. And that's exactly what's happened. And now there's going to be Babies that are going to die because of companies like Uber and Lyft helping fund Planned Parenthood, helping advance the ends of abortionists across the country. And so the question is, is is this what the right should stand for? Should the right simply be a force in American life that whenever a different commercial interest has something that it would like to get done, they can go to rattle some bags of cash in front of a libertarian think tank and simply say, great, we're going we're gonna to get what we want. I think not. Again, the merits of this policy are entirely uh, up for debate. I mean, I was a college student at the time who didn't have a car. I made a lot of use of Uber and Lyft. My life sucked when we didn't have Uber and Lyft. Um, and so I probably would would support some version of a bill making it possible uh, for Uber and Lyft to operate in a broadly unconstrained way. Um, but the question is about political capital. Should the right spend overwhelming political capital on companies that know that the right will never actually be a threat to them in any way? only a tool for them to occasionally leave the bed of the left, come get what they need, and then go promptly back. It's an important question to think about. It's one that we all should be thinking about. Uh, and it's one that you should be thinking about when it comes to what you demand out of your Republican elected officials, because we can do better, and the American people deserve better. So Thank you for indulging me as I uh, ranted about that. You can find my entire deranged thread on Twitter. I'm at S Sharma US. Follow the rest of the team, uh, Nick S. Solheim. I forget Emma's uh, uh, handle, but I'm sure you can find her too. Jake is on private, so if you try to follow him, he'll yell at me. So please don't do that. Uh, you can follow our organization at ammoment.org. I think we're just about to cross 5,000 subscribers uh, or follows on Twitter. Uh, go join us and be part of that. Follow us on Facebook, uh, bookmarkamericanmoment.org, uh, and stay tuned because we're not slowing down. We just got done with our fellowship program this year, but there's still important things that we want to get done this year. Reach out to us if you want to be a part of it uh, and, and feel free to join our team uh, at American Moment in whatever way makes the most sense to you. Uh, rate and review, five stars. If you write a question in your review, we'll be sure to answer it. Um, we're still amazed how many of you listen every week. And so uh, we're not slowing down in this episode. Uh, While well, this podcast is going to keep going and we have fantastic episodes coming up. So thank you for listening and we'll see you next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.